Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, we spend a, a lot of time in the booth together. Yes, we do. This is not the introduction you want me to make, I'm betting. <laughs> uh, no, keep going, Molly. I, I, I want to see where this path leads us. I think you know where it's going to lead us, Kristen. Because- I don't know the sparkle in your eye. I'm not really <laughs> sure where it's going to lead us. Molly, you've already asked me to marry you on one podcast. I beg your pardon, Kristen Conger. You asked me <laughs> to marry you. Really? Yes. I don't remember it that way. Kristen Conger, everyone better write in to Kristen Conger and remind her that she is, she, re- she <laughs> has treated our marriage proposal with such disrespect and now she's trying to pin this on me. She wiggled out of it and so now I'm going to tell an embarrassing story about her menstruation. Oh God. No, I won't guys, but that's the topic of today's episode, menstruation. We love to talk about it. Yeah. Welcome back kids. It's mom stuff. <laughs> Menstruation hour. And, uh, the question today is one that's been oft, oft requested by our listeners. Yeah, a common myth out there. It's a very common myth. In fact, one study said that about 80% of women buy into this myth. Is it a myth? We'll get to that. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, that women who spend a lot of time together, as Kristen and I do in our booth, mm-hmm. our booth of our womb, really, it's a closed, closed area. <laughs> um, side note. Um, do women who spend a lot of time together get in sync with their menstrual cycles? Because how many yeah. times have you been like, oh, gosh, I have the worst cramps. I, I'm just on my period. And someone will be like, me too. And then you're, and like, you're like, oh, my God. Is it because we're such good friends? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the men can turn around and be like, if they're in a woman full of office, they might say. Like, woman, do I say women full of office? Oh, women, if they're in a women full of office. <laughs> if they're in an office full of women, they'll be like. Everyone's on their period. Watch out. So yeah, it's something that's, that's batted around a lot. Yeah. And, and, and Molly, I think that you and I can both agree. This is something. It just, it just happens. You know, the, the, the moment when you're, you know, complaining to, to a gal pal. I think everyone's been through this moment about your menstrual moments. Because I feel like it is something of, a hardcore bonding moment when, you know, in the, in the, in the peak of your menstrual discomfort, a friend leans over and says, girlfriend, same things happening to me. Yeah, exactly. Makes you feel a little less alone because as we just, how, as we have discussed about menstruation, it's a private thing. No one talks about it. Mm-hmm. The fact that you could even be just sharing it with someone. Kind of comforting. Yeah. And plus, you know who to borrow tampons from. Now, to get to the root of whether or not women do, in fact, sync up their menstrual cycles, we got to go back to 1971. This all starts in 1971 with Martha McClintock. Yes. And she was just an undergraduate, which is pretty impressive to me. And as many undergraduates do, she noticed, hey, all these ladies who live together... They tend to have their periods at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think she's like in a dorm setting. Yeah. A women's dorm. Yeah. I mean, in college, I mean, I think that's when you first maybe start to really notice the fact that this can happen. Yeah. Once once you start, yeah, you move out of your parents' house and you're living with other women. Right. Although, if you're living with your mom, that can affect things. I guess so. But anyway, Martha noticed it when she was at the dorm because it was an all-female dorm, women overload, boom. She decides to investigate and she publishes her study in 1971. Um Base, and her, the basis of her study was to ask 135 college girls 
to recall their period start dates um, and the period before that start date at three times during the year. So she had a total of six period start dates. And uh, she found that as the year went on, the start dates got closer and closer together. And I, what I love about a menstrual synchrony study, mm-hmm. Kristen, is that there usually has to be a really detailed analysis of what the dorm looked like and just how close the women were. Right. And where the common areas were and who was sharing a room with who. And who's, and who's friends with whom and how close of friends are they? Yeah. It's, it's very much turning, uh, college drama into a, a paper of sorts <laughs> yeah. because it's like, here's layout of the dorm. Here's who didn't like each other. Uh-huh. Here's who had to live together anyway. Yeah. Did their periods sync up? And so in that first 1971 study, McClintock finds that, yes, they, they get closer together, that something is affecting these women so that their menstrual periods start and end at the same time. She wasn't quite sure what it was. Right. And from just to be specific, from April to October throughout the study, the, the close friends, the girls who were, and the girls who were living together, their periods aligned two days closer. Mm-hmm. Um, which she found to be a pretty significant result. And thanks to this, we should say, thanks to the sensation that was this 1971 study published in the journal Nature, uh, menstrual synchronization also referred to as the McClintic effect. Oh, we will not leave McClintic behind for this entire no, podcast. She, no. she, she is a recurring character. She doesn't just duck away. She might be the starring role. I shouldn't call her a recurring character. Now, let me throw out some of the reasons she thought this was happening. Um, because she wasn't sure in 1971 what was causing this. She considered perhaps it was the fact they all ate in a common cafeteria mm-hmm. because there are some species that it's more about times of plenty that, that changes their cycles more than, than close proximity. Mm-hmm. But she'd also studied rats and it was close proximity that affected the rats. Um, she thought maybe the moon had something to do with it, particularly if women, if these women were like having study groups late at night. And they were exposed to more light than they would be if they'd been asleep. Like she thought maybe the light, dark cycles were affecting them too. Right. Because they found what in like certain monkey species, mm-hmm. uh, their menstru, their menses, their estrus cycles are, uh, heavily influenced by the moon. Which was why sometimes we will refer to menstruation as our moon cycles. <sighs> Um, she thought maybe it was just the amount of time people spent together, which is why she asked all the girls in the study to evaluate like their best friend, the person they saw the most, the roommate, because maybe it was just like during sleep that, mm. that the roommate was influencing this. She thought maybe it might be men. So she asked all the girls about relationship statuses. Yeah. And then one thing she throws in, and you know, these 10 reasons where she's trying to figure out what's going on. She mentioned pheromones. Mm-hmm. And pheromones are kind of controversial in whether they exist in humans or not. Yeah, they've, no one has ever really come to a conclusion about pheromones. It's something that we can't really explain, but they're basically hormonal signals that our bodies supposedly give off that influence that other people have a physiological reaction to. And a lot of times when we talk about pheromones, it's related to attraction, like you send off some kind of lusty signal to John Hamm and he falls <laughs> and he in picks love up on you. it. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of controversial just because the um, mechanism for picking up pheromones hasn't been definitively found in humans. But I think we've talked about like on our lust podcast, some animals, you can see the organ yeah. that can pick up these unconscious signals that we're all sending. So um, 
So she continues this work on pheromones and other people are, you know, at the same time that she's working on these pheromones, other people are, are confirming her study. And then in 1998, McClinic comes up with a, or comes out with, I should say, a follow-up study really driving home this ovulation pheromone connection where she says, absolutely, the pheromones that women produce have an effect on other women's ovulation cycles. And she thinks that what we're doing is sending each other messages about Mm -hmm. when's a good time to have a baby. Because if you look at these ancient populations, then it's to your advantage to be a mother with a bunch of other mothers. Your brood has a better chance of surviving Mm -hmm. versus these broods that it's just one one kid. Yeah, and it depends on what phase uh, in your cycle you're in, whether you're in the luteal phase or the follicular phase. Basically, like how close you are to dropping that how, how pregnant can you get? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I have to say, she says that women in this study didn't even know if they were in the control group or the real group. But I have to say, I don't know if this study sounds very appealing for me to do because what it involves is uh, taking a, a swab from the armpit of a woman mm-hmm. who is in one of these phases that Kristen mentioned and giving it to another woman and seeing if that uh, swab, smelling that swab based on a uh, Based on where these women were, did it did it affect their menstrual cycle? Yeah. And McClinic says, absolutely. She said, depending on, she swabbed for two different pheromones based on the where the women were in their menstrual cycle. And she said that one uh, pheromone produced before ovulation would shorten the ovarian cycle of the woman who, you know, was wearing this, this <laughs> underarm patch around. Which and, are odorless. Again, pheromones yeah. are odorless. It's not like you're smelling BO. Right, right. Um, it's not like, um, you know, they're wearing like someone's dirty laundry. Um, but then the second pheromone, which was produced at ovulation, would lengthen their cycles. Right. Like, this is not a good time to get pregnant. Yeah. Wait a little longer. Yeah. So she's found that you can affect menstruation both ways. You can both shorten the cycle and lengthen the cycle depending on which pheromone produced at which part of your cycle you can, you're smelling. Mm-hmm. So she says, yes, this is definite proof of both pheromones and of menstrual synchronization. Right. And we should say too that, uh, 68% of the female participants experienced some kind of change alteration in their cycles, but some women did not. So there was still kind of this this other question of well what what is yeah. kind of going on here why aren't the pheromones affecting everyone equally but still sixty eight percent pretty significant proportion it was pretty significant so you know throughout throughout this time McClintic is doing all sorts of work with pheromones one thing she found is that um, when when women smell uh, a nursing mother's pheromones they too uh, they experience more sexual desire mm-hmm. the thought being that. Uh, you know, they can smell that another woman's had a baby and is nursing it. It's a healthy baby. The woman's nursing healthfully. And we want a baby. I want a baby. So ah. I'm going to feel so much sexual desire. I mean, they didn't even measure whether they want a baby. They asked them, if you are with a man, yeah. do you feel like having more sex? They were like, yes. They were like, if you uh, are single, are you having more sexual fantasies? The women were like, yes. So yeah. this work um, on pheromones, I think, is really notable because... It, it evaluates women's health in a way that I don't think is evaluated that often in the academic world. How often on this podcast have we said women are understudied? Mm-hmm. They're not doing research on women. Mm-hmm. They'll do the research on men, but not on women. So here's an example of how one woman's work has really influenced a lot of, a lot of work on, you know, sexual desire and ovulation and when's the best time to get pregnant. 
So I think that's pretty cool. But. But. McClintic has some foes. Yeah, McClin- friendly foes, I suppose. Yeah, fr- friendly foes, but McClintic, not everyone completely bought McClintic's synchrony theory. So in 2005, we have a pair of researchers from the University of California and also from North Sichuan Medical College in the People's Republic of China. They publish a study and it's got a pretty, pretty straightforward title, Molly. You ready it's for this? Pretty big smackdown, in my opinion. All right. So the name of the study published in the journal Human Nature, winter 2006, quote, women do not synchronize their menstrual cycles. Subtitle, eat it, McClinic. I don't see that subtitle on my copy. Yeah, it's true. But, you know, it's implied. It was pretty clear. They broke down McClinic's methodology and said, I smell a rat here. Something is not right. I don't like how she collected her data. I don't like how she analyzed her data and applied statistical uh, analyses to it. We're going to do this again and we're going to do it better. And, uh, oh, guess what? Women don't synchronize. No more bonding for you women. Yeah. Stop, stop talking about your periods, ladies, and just get over it. I think that Jeffrey Shank and, and, uh, Martha McClintock were actually friends and he actually wanted it to work out really well. But once he did this research, he was like, I can't, can't support it. It's like, Martha, Mar- Martha, I'm sorry. Martha, I tried. But Martha, you are wrong because yes. here's, here's what they do first. First, they do the experiment because they want to do a bigger, better study. Yeah. So they use 186 Chinese women living in dorms over the course of a year. And again, you get this great layout of like the dorm and what it's like there and who's friends with who, who, who likes whom, who's around, who's around each other a lot. And, uh, so they do that. And instead of just asking the woman to recall, they have the women keep journals. Which I have to say, already, that sounds like a much better methodology than just getting someone to recall their last two period start dates. Right. Because women, think about the last time you went to the doctor and they were like, well, what was the date of your last period? You have to scratch your head for a minute. You know, I mean, we don't. Yeah, it can be hard to remember. (laughs) That's the point. So these women are in college. They're keeping track of their um, their period start dates. Mm -hmm. They're all college age. And so they collect the data and they run it through all sorts of all sorts of data analyses mm-hmm. and they find, you know, yeah, sometimes you do, you do start your period on the same day. Yeah. Sometimes you do see evidence of the fact that women might be changing their cycles, but that's just because women change their cycles. It's because there's not a set cycle length. Mm-hmm. It can be affected by things such as stress. It can be affected by, you know, diet. All, yeah. All exercise. these things. So let's not, let's not say that it's these other women causing this because they really can't find Anything other than casual association. Right. Basically, when you take a large group of women who are, you know, sharing the same space at some point, like you said, they're they'll have their period at the same time just by chance and other times they won't. You know, and so that's what they say. And they go back and they look at all of McClintock's work and they're like, this is this is chance. So Which th- I guess doesn't it doesn't diminish the amount of bonding you can do. It can be more right. instead of being like, oh, we're bonding because we're spending so much time together. It's like, wow, we have the good fortune to both have had our menstrual cycle at the same time. Yeah. But it's nothing more than that. Just chance. Just just chance. Doesn't, chance. Doesn't mean that we have to be friendlier in the hall. Um 
Let's, no. not, let's not let's not take this too seriously. Yeah, yeah. We don't need to get married. I'd like to keep a casual distance from you. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, I, I think that the reason why you said earlier in the podcast that 80% of women believe that they do synchronize with their girlfriends. And I think it's just because it's sort of just reflects the findings of the Shank study that at some point you have so many periods throughout your lifetime <laughs> and there are probably so many times, you know, that it just slips out somehow to a girlfriend or whoever that you are experiencing your moon cycle that at some point, you know, the chances are the odds are in your favor that at some point someone's going to say me too. Exactly. And, you know, there's and they still don't know, you know, in, in the first 1971 study, McClintock didn't even rule out people who were on hormonal birth control because she thought maybe they're still sending out the signals. Maybe everyone was getting synced to the birth control person. Yeah. Can't prove it. No, there's it doesn't matter if you're on birth control, if you're not, if you have 10 periods a year, 12 periods a year, mm-hmm. however many periods you have, it's just it's chance. And I got to say, I was I was a little sad to see the McClintock effect debunked. But at the same time, too, like you said, Molly, uh, it is an argument uh, against forging false friendships on the basis (laughs) of your periods. (laughs) That's a positive thing. True. And I feel like, you know, maybe you have something in common with your enemy just because you don't spend a lot of time with her. You might still both be having a period. Yeah. Just by chance. Just by chance. The world spins on chance. (laughs) So there you have it. Myth busted. Do women sync up their periods? Yeah, maybe, but it's just by happenstance, not because of the rainbow bond of friendship between you and stars and magic. And the jury's still out on pheromones. I mean, there might still be something to that, but... And if you feel like your libido's taking a little bit of a dip... Hang out with some women who are breastfeeding. That's another takeaway. Yeah, I think I think the takeaway is that McClintock is still doing pretty valuable work that, as I mentioned, highlights women and mm-hmm. the messages we might send to each other in a really unique way. Yes. But the question of the day, do gal pals sync up? No. Busted. So, so on that note, let's read some emails. I have an email from Amelia on the episode about... Gender and Instruments. She writes, My father has been after me and my two sisters for as long as I can remember to play one very specific instrument, the sousaphone. Not not an instrument that came up in our podcast. No. She writes, uh, The sousaphone is basically a giant tuba that wraps around the player's body. A boy instrument to be sure, but dad insisted. Think about it. Your average Big Ten university needs 12 sousaphones on the field at every football game. That means they need to bring in at least four or five sousaphone players with every incoming freshman class. To admissions officers who must know about these quotas, there could be nothing more rare and desirable than a girl who plays the sousaphone. That must be the holy grail of admissions diversity. Scholarships and admissions courting abound. Dad never missed an opportunity to point out the sousaphone. At parades and football games, he would count them. While listening to music, he always had an ear out for one. And as I approached college age, he desperately bribed me to learn to play this instrument. He figured there were only three buttons. It couldn't be that hard. Well, I never did learn to play it, and neither have either my sisters. My sister and I got into and graduated from college just fine without the sousaphone, and I'm sure our youngest sister will. I thought you might like to hear about a parent pressing his daughters to break with those rigid gender roles, 
even if it was for a break in tuition prices instead of social change or musical greatness. Nice. And to Amelia, it does sound like we have very, very similar fathers. And I'm lucky that my father, I don't think, knows what a soup support is. <laughs> um... Well, I've got one here from a listener in response to an older podcast on what constitutes an eating disorder. And she says, I used to be a binge eater and have now been struggling with bulimia for almost two years, although I have avoided actually calling it that up until now. I'm currently seeking help and getting better slowly, but surely. I was so glad that you talked about the shame involved in bulimia and other eating disorders because that's exactly what it is. As someone who's been struggling with an eating disorder, I would just like to say that the best thing anyone can do who has a friend that they're worried about is just be there for that person. Like you both pointed out, there are a whole slew of issues which underlie any eating disorder. Issues surrounding control, self-image, perfectionism, etc. Some people are less responsive to confrontation than others, but often saying that someone actually cares about you and is concerned for your well-being is very nice. I'm not saying that that alone will solve all the problems that someone with eating disorders has, but dealing with an eating disorder is a very solitary thing. In my experience, you tend to isolate yourself, and having someone to talk to can help ease the feeling of isolation. At the same time, as you two pointed out, no one should feel that they have to play therapist for their friend. If the person is willing, it can be very helpful just to support them in the process of finding help. Admitting that you have an eating disorder at all is very difficult and shameful, and finding help can be even more overwhelming. So, thank you so much from uh, for the advice from someone who knows. And if you would like to contact us, it's momstuffathowstuffwork.com or contact everyone on our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter. We got a Twitter. It's Mom Stuff Podcast. And then lastly, we also have a blog and it's Stuff Mom Never Told You and it's at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?